Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hey, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond at the home of The Happy MD in Seattle, Washington, with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast, pop podcast. My guest today is Susan Wilson, MD. She's an ER doc for 25 years and now is in a position of being a peer coach. And one of the things that she really enjoys and has personal experience of is second victim. And uh, I imagine that as I say the word second victim, it may or may not make sense to you. I recognize that a lot of doctors are not aware of this phenomenon. And I think it's really important that we have this discussion. But basically what we're talking about, and Susan, correct me if if I get it wrong, it's when you witness something that is traumatic for the patient or the situation, and it also traumatizes you. You're the second victim in the interaction. And with that as a start, give us your definition of second victim. And let's talk about this because I think people are going to resonate. If you're listening right now, you might resonate with what we say right away. Oh, my gosh, that's me. So let's just let people know what it means. Well, thanks, Dyke. I really appreciate you allowing me to come on and talk a little bit. So, yes, my idea of second victim syndrome is the thought that the effect of an unanticipated traumatic medical event really impacts on the healthcare professional. So while the patient is the primary victim of whatever it may be, the healthcare professional becomes traumatized, and then they are also a secondary victim in the event. And some very common examples of this, medical errors probably thought of as the most common, but certainly delayed diagnoses, complications of procedures, medication errors, And I actually even put medical malpractice in this category. Um, And then, of course, certainly unanticipated patient death is probably the other main one that we all think of. Right. I mean, when you say this, I I can remember the one most traumatic thing that happened to me actually happened as a senior resident when I was involved in a childbirth where the baby died. It happened very suddenly, as OB things do, right? Mm -hmm. That 98% of the time, it's perfectly wonderful. And 1% of the time, it is instant tragedy. From that point forward, I could never, I delivered like 250 babies by that point. I I ultimately delivered 500 in my career. But from that point forward, I could not attend a delivery without sweat and sphincters tight and heartburn Mm -hmm. and just pray, 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 pray that everything would come out okay. And in the wake of that delivery, I remember having nightmares of, you know, those amnion hooks? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. In my dream, it had a trigger. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So I, I imagine that that fulfills the criteria. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. Well, and you know, the interesting thing is, um, as you and I were speaking earlier, I had never heard this term until a couple of years ago. And I've been practicing for 25 years. As an ER doc. Yes. No yes. less. I actually started chuckling to myself while I was listening to this lecture, realizing this is what I've been living my entire life. 
and not knowing that there was a name for it. And then the subsequent information that we got in the lecture was about peer support and that that there is support available for people. And so it just really stuck with me that yes, this is a real issue. And so many of us are suffering from it, but we really, we, we don't recognize it necessarily for the name it, it has. And the fact that then yes, there is help available, we just have to figure out Number one, how to access that help. And number two, from I think the systems standpoint, how do we get that help out to the healthcare professionals? Well, and I'll say this is a perfect collision between our programming and the reality of practice. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things we teach here is two prime directives that we're trained in med school and residency. Number one is the one everybody can say out loud. You know, the patient comes first. Got to have an off switch on that. But the second one, I don't know anybody else teaches this, but I sure do. The second one is a subterranean, subconscious, very much more powerful. It says this, never show weakness. And especially you see it in surgeons, right? You lose a patient, even if what you did killed the patient, what is the mantra? Get back in the saddle. Don't have feelings about your patients so that you begin to say, oh my gosh, this is really affecting me. I was just destroyed by what just happened. What's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. So you could have all the systematic availability of peer coaches and all of that, but we're programmed to feel guilt and shame and not ask. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I actually just listened to your podcast that you did recently with Pam Pappas about the whole idea of self-compassion. And I really feel like that completely dovetails into this conversation as well, because as you pointed out, there's a stigma. I mean, physicians are notorious for being stoic and feeling like they don't need any help and they're fine and they're going to do it by themselves. And so I think changing the culture, obviously, is the huge challenge, because we've all been trained. I mean, you and I probably were trained in the same. I'm 62. Okay, well, I'm, I'm just a little bit younger, but, <laughs> but we had the same general training that that this is the way it is. Well, let's be um, clear, it's work hour restrictions or not. Both of us were in unrestricted residency right, education. Right, right. And you just were taught that, you know, this is how it is. And there was never any discussion about our own emotional health. And so I think now this whole concept of people being much more aware of these traumatic events than impacting them. And then as we've talked about, or we know that these kinds of things will contribute to people becoming burnt out, not even to mention, obviously, the tremendous stress and anxiety that this pandemic has placed on the healthcare system. So I kind of feel like we are really in a perfect storm right now of the moral injury, the compassion fatigue, you know, all these buzzwords that you hear around the pandemic on top of the pre-existing things that lead to burnout. So I think people trying to allow themselves to get themselves some kind of emotional support. I mean, we really need to instill in, in people, you know, in, in healthcare professionals that that's okay. And, you know, the fact that they are not alone, that everyone in medicine goes through these kinds of scenarios. So I think, yeah, that's the big challenge right now. Well, I, I, and you used it just a second, but I often will hear people talk about stoic, which is in my mind, it's a characteristic of a person's personality. But when we see doctors not asking for help after something tremendously traumatic, mm -hmm. I don't see that as stoic. I see that as a reflection of our programming because just try and have feelings as a resident, especially a surgical intern, just try. Mm -hmm. You'll get drummed out of that program so fast it will make your head spin. Right. So, and, and again, 
about culture. It goes deeper than that. It's hardwired into our psyche to avoid these things. And I don't know if it's any different for the folks that are coming through residency programs that are not work hour restricted. I don't know. But the same kind of traumatic thing will happen with the patients because when you make the choice to be a light worker a long time ago and you made that choice, you're going to lose every patient you got. Bad things are going to happen. You said, I'm going to be a helper and a healer no matter what, because I know it's not going to be a beautiful thing all the time. I will help. I will heal. I will use my hands and my mind and my energy to do what I can when I can. But if I can't do anything, I'm going to be there, hopefully, to be a comfort, mm-hmm. regardless Definitely. of the suffering that's going on. But it's so much more than some sort of stoic. Because again, it's the doctor haters who say things like, well, doctors are just like that. No, we're not. It's beat into us. Right. Then the question becomes, okay, I've done a bunch of work around this. I do a thing called the bad outcome hot dish delivery team, proactive trauma management, like a code lavender. And maybe we can talk about code lavender in a little bit too. But let's say that I, let's talk about two situations. Something really terrible just happened and it has eaten me up inside. And I know that that I'm hesitant to talk to my coworkers and certainly not any of the leaders in the organization where I work. What would you suggest that I be doing with my thoughts and my feelings and my struggle and my pain at this point? I think talking to someone really helps talking through. And, you know, that's kind of the whole premise of peer support and my bias as a physician coach is that, you know, as a physician coach, not only are you a peer to people in healthcare, but you also have the specific skills for these kind of conversations. So it's, I think it's really important to have a conversation with someone who can number one, be confidential, they can provide you a safe space that you can vent, you can get everything out on the table, how you're feeling, they're non judgmental. And they really kind of help you get through sort of how you're feeling and help you to cope. That being said, I think people that are trying to maybe navigate this individually and not necessarily involve an outside person for support, I think trying to take something positive away from the event and trying to maybe take a step back and and kind of think about what they can learn from the event, that's certainly one thing. Of course, the traditional self-care that we always tell people about, sleeping, eating well, working out, all those things that help us physically, maybe make you feel better, you know, mindfulness, meditation. But I really do think that when you have an acute event, I really think reaching out and having someone else to kind of bounce it off of is really important. And I mean, I know from my personal experience, having someone to talk through these bad situations really helped a lot. So I think there's only so much you can do for yourself. And I think at some point you need to recognize, yeah, I do need somebody else to kind of help buoy me through this. People will often ask me, you know, well, I'm a coach. I can coach doctors. You don't have to be a doctor to be a coach. And I say, yeah, unless you have been through an experience where somebody filled your shoes with amniotic fluid, You really can't understand Mm -hmm. what we do. You can't understand what it's like. And I think that the urge is there's that saying that people don't understand until they care how much you care to be witnessed, to be heard and understood, to relate the story to another doctor who's not a member of a peer review committee is a really important opening that Mm -hmm. a coach can provide. And also, I would say that most physicians aren't very good coaches unless they've had training. So I would definitely recommend a professional. And your coach training was called peer coaching, right? 
Yeah, I actually am considered a certified physician peer coach. Physician peer coach. Yeah. Yes, I totally echo your sentiments that I think having somebody that's been actually trained in these kinds of conversations is really important. Physicians are really, I think anyone in healthcare that, that's also a coach and they know what medicine is all about and they, they're part of a healthcare team. I think having that added dimension into your experience really then can help support the people in medicine that need this kind of support. And it's really interesting. There is an article, I forget exactly where I saw this piece of data, but up to 88% of healthcare professionals would prefer somebody appear to provide them uh, support as opposed to a therapist or a social worker, somebody that's not in medicine. So we know that that's really important for people. Well, it's like being a battlefield veteran, right? I want to talk to somebody who's been in the battlefield. The, the intensity of the experience and the intensity of the emotional response to that experience, we want somebody who knows what we're talking about. And I joke when I say, fill your socks full of amniotic fluid, but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, you've been an ER doc, so gunshot wounds, car wrecks, all sorts of crazy things mm -hmm. like that. We talked for just a second there about what should I do if I'm having trouble processing. I have a question for you. How do you recommend that I might reach out to a colleague who they're not going to admit it, right? They were trained, never show weakness, but I know something bad happened because I was on the periphery of it and I can see that they've been struggling since then. How would you recommend we reach out to that person? Well, that's actually a really great point because I think that is maybe one of the ways that we can actually get people to take advantage of peer support is not only expecting them to get to reach out for it themselves, but also those around them to be aware enough that their colleague is hurting. And so I do think if you are part of a team and you notice, yeah, one of your fellow physicians or fellow nurse was really struggling and you can tell that now they're withdrawn, they're just not, you know, you can tell there's something wrong. I think it's really important to at least try to approach them. And again, you're not confronting, but you're you're non-judgmental, but just trying to approach them with the idea that, hey, you know, I'm I'm here. How are you feeling? How are you doing? I would like to offer additional support to you. How are you coping? So it's trying to get a little bit of, of insight into really how they're doing. And if you do identify that they are struggling and they're they're willing to admit that and willing to get more help, then being able to direct them to an appropriate support system is, I think that's vital, really. Well, I think one of the things that I've always recommended is that it go like this. Hey, Susan, it's Dyke. Have you got a minute? And you say, Sure. sure. And I say, well, hey, just real quick. And I'm putting my hand on my head right now. I'm taking my doctor hat off now. It's just you and me heart to heart. I've been watching you and I'm concerned. How are you doing? And you're going to say, fine, get away from me. Now, what that is, is that's your programming. Never show weakness. But I always recommend that people take their doctor hat off in a quiet moment alone with that person and be willing to accept pretty strong resistance based upon your programming. But the fact that you sent that message is of reassurance to that person, even if they don't take advantage of your support. I think it's really important to reach out if uh, you see somebody who's struggling. And most of the time, what we do is we put our heads down and we stay busy and we try to avoid the feelings that come up in us. By the way, let's talk about this a little bit. One of the things I learned, right, was don't have feelings about your patients. And when I was out in practice, I think I got broke in residency by that childbirth mm -hmm. trauma. And it's like, look, 
don't have feelings about your patient, you would have to not be human to not have feelings about your patient, which then becomes very confusing, right? Oh my God, I'm all torn up about this. Oh my God, what's wrong with me, right? Oh my God, but I have feelings. I'm a human being. People want me to be their doctor because of my capacity to have and talk about feelings. It's just very, very confusing. Absolutely. Well, and that's, I think that's one of the messages that we need to try to keep conveying to healthcare professionals is that you are a human being. And especially we've all heard this before about burnout. There's nothing wrong with the physician that's burnt out. It's what's going on around him. And it's really the same with these acute crisis type events. There's nothing wrong with you that you're feeling the way you are. I mean, people go, there's actually very well described six stages or six phases that people go through in second victim syndrome. And it's really very similar to describing the stages of grief, you know, the Kubler-Ross stages, which have been around forever. And when I think back on cases I've had, I think, yep, that was totally, there was the chaos. Yes, the intrusive reflections. I was totally ruminating about this case. You know, I was just obsessed with what I did and, and dissecting it. And then the whole thing of trying to regain the trust of your colleagues and, and regain kind of your confidence. And so all of these stages are very well described and it's normal. And that's the thing I think trying to communicate with our colleagues that this is normal, that what you're going through. Let's make this kind of practical here today. So what I'd like everybody who's listening to do today is to build a firewall. And here's what I mean. What are the resources that are available to you in your job for counseling, coaching, talking to someone, informal and formal ones? And Susan, you work for an, an employee assistance program for physicians. So EAP is something that you might have if you're an employee. I also would, would like you to, to dig around a little bit, find out what's available to you around emergency phone numbers that people can call if they're in distress, like the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, or maybe you have something in your organization. And I believe that it's important for everybody in every healthcare organization to actually have a business card with the local suicide prevention hotline on it so that you can always hand that out or use it for yourself. Because ultimately, we're talking about things that if they go to their extreme can end up in depression and suicide. And then mm -hmm. that depression and suicide can cause a vicious cycle because I, I don't know about you, but I've seen over and over again that suicides come in batches. And I hate to be a bummer on this podcast like this, but we have to prepare for the worst. And in that okay. stance, once we've prepared for the worst, we expect the best. If you have to pause this audio and go figure out what your resources are, write down the numbers, have a couple copies of those on you in case you need to hand it to a struggling colleague, but be prepared to, to really backstop somebody if you find out that you reach out to them and they actually are suicidal rather than just struggling at this point in time. Right. That's so, that's so important. And I think to kind of add to that, especially now in our pandemic mode that we're in and knowing that there are so many other additional issues now that are becoming really significant. I mean, like moral injury. I mean, who would have thought in- Let's define it. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of getting to the, to the point where you have to decide, okay, who's really going to get a ventilator? Who's, who's going to get the high flow O2 because we only have so much in the hospital? Who gets the PPE among the healthcare providers and you know right now even who's getting the vaccine right so there's so many pieces of this moral injury thing and even before the pandemic i mean luckily i've never had to personally uh, withhold 
chemotherapy from a cancer patient, but you know, if their insurance isn't covering it, I mean, that's, that's a huge moral injury situation right there. But anyway, my point is that now with all of these additional burdens, I really feel like it's important, number one, to find out where can you get support. But if your facility doesn't offer support, I mean, it's really, I think, up to us as the healthcare professionals to really encourage our administration that, hey, we really, really need this. And I think the tide is starting to turn. And I am very hopeful that moving forward, that administration and healthcare organizations are going to be much more aware of the need for peer support. Obviously, there's so many layers to this onion. What I'll say is when I think about a comprehensive organizational strategy to prevent burnout, a crisis management function is one of the four buckets. It's often one that doesn't exist inside the organization. So for instance, I was working with a New York-based healthcare system just a couple of weeks ago, 4,000 providers in the front line, no hotline. And what I like to do is just walk in, grab the first provider I run into and say, hey, what's your suicide prevention hotline around here? Do you have a card? Do you have something like that? Never seen it happen, right? This is really, really, really important stuff. Now, when you were talking about the six phases, are you talking about Zunin and Myers, six phases of the emotional response to disaster? Or is there a different curve for second victim? So actually, what I am basing all of this on is a lot of work done by Sue Scott, who's actually a nurse and a PhD at the University of Missouri. And she's done lots of work on patient safety and had developed, it's called the For You team at University of Missouri. And she has actually gone to a lot of different healthcare organizations throughout the country. And I, I knew about this because her program came to Milwaukee, where I have practiced my entire career. And so I was made aware of her particular program. And she described these six phases of second victim syndrome. Is, yeah, there, a, and, is there a web reference to that that you can give us the link for and we can post it with the podcast? Yes, I will send that to you separately. She has done lots of work. She's also de described the three-tier support support of people accessing the support. And interestingly, the, the very bottom of the pyramid is the department you're working in. So for me, the emergency department, like somebody, you know, my medical director maybe pulls me aside and says, oh, I'm really sorry about this case. I'm, I'm here for you and let's talk through it. And then the second level, which is the big body of the pyramid is the peer support itself. And that's where the trained peer supporters come in. And then the very top of the pyramid is the EAP. So if it's identified that somebody is still struggling after having the standard peer support conversations, then they are directed to their EAP. But she's done a lot of work on this whole concept through her interest in patient safety. Yep. And patient safety means medical errors. <laughs> So, right. Exactly. So medical errors are where the secondary trauma comes from. Right. And then just to build a loop back to the burnout work that we do, right? I'm certain that burnout, we know that burnout causes excess medical errors, which causes patient trauma and trauma then on the providers. And then just to be clear about moral injury, moral injury is that state where you have decided what's best for the patient and something blocks you from providing that for them. In some cases, it's an insurance denial. In other cases, it's money. And in other cases, like right now, because we are now in January of 2021, in the midst of the second wave of COVID around the USA, there are situations where you're in a triage or scarcity mode where you literally cannot provide to the patient the thing that you wish. And the main trauma I would think that's going on here is all of the agony of 
people dying without their family members near or people denied ventilators and wheeled off to a corner of the ER where they're expected to expire. And that's just got to be number one, horrible for the patient, two, horrible for the family, but also horrible for the providers. Right. Well, super important topic. And most of what, what we've been talking about right now is what I would call reactive crisis management, meaning a person has to ask for help and then we provide the help. But there are also several forms of proactive crisis management. Code Lavender is one. And the Bad Outcome Hot Dish delivery team is another. Are you familiar with Code Lavender? You know, I've heard the term before. I haven't really done a lot of reading about it, but yes, I've definitely heard the term. So Code Lavender was developed in the original program was in Hawaii. What it was, was a team of nurses and Reiki therapists, interestingly enough, who said, hey, if there's ever a bad incident that happens in the hospital and you need to get the people who are seeing patients that day out and taken care of, we'll cover their shifts, we'll do Reiki, we'll take care of them. And uh, the way that Code Lavender works is anybody can call Code Lavender. So it's like something bad happens. It doesn't have to be the people on the ward who are likely to just stay there and try and soldier on. Anybody can throw the code lavender flag and income the replacements and income the Reiki therapist. And the index case for that particular study that I read was that they had in the NICU, they had a very premature baby that they had had in the facility for six months. And on the day the baby was due to be discharged to home, it coded and died. Oh, my God. And so they pulled all the nurses off, the replacements all came in. But notice that this is proactive because, again, never show weakness. Mm -hmm. The person who's least likely to ask for help is almost certainly going to be the person who needs it. Absolutely. Bad outcome hot dish delivery team is just having a group, an informal group of people who say, hey, if something bad happens, we'll bake a hot dish and go see whoever's in trouble. By the way, you need to bake your hot dish in Pyrex. So you have an excuse to come back for the dish in a week. So you got at least three or four visits with this person and ask them whenever you're delivering that hot dish, if they'd like to talk. That's perfect. That's brilliant. <laughs> Is there anything that you'd like to do or say or ask to be complete for today with our little conversation here, Susan? Well, I just think, you know, that the main thing is really continuing the conversation about second victim syndrome and people really being aware of the term. I think people all, once they hear the term, they, they know what it is, but being aware of the term and being aware that peer support is available. And I think really we're at the stage now where we need to find creative ways to get that support to people, both leading them to it as well as having it available and then also changing the environment that we're, we're in in terms of uh, how people feel about what they're doing. And if you have an EAP, if you have a second victim prevention peer coaching program in your organization, the utilization of those programs should never be zero. Correct. It's not a good sign when it's a zero. And remember, too, at that light worker fork in the road where all of us made the decision to go into medicine, you put yourself at risk for burnout. You put yourself at risk for second victim. It's the nature of a light worker's mission. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wilson, for being with us here today. And then Dr. Wilson's website is sjwprofessionalcoaching.com. Uh, her email is susanwilsonmd at gmail.com. Thanks so much for your time and energy here today. And uh, go out there and be safe, huh? Well, thank you so much, Dyke. It was great to be here. And same to you. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. <laughs>